independence comes from dependence. So the more a baby's needs are met in the early months and years, the more they'll be ready to push off out of the nest on their own seems at first to be so counterintuitive. And yet when you think about how do we emerge into the world and it comes because you have a firm base, a secure base of attachment, you know that you have a parent that you can come to for support. Hey ladies, welcome to season three of B3 Podcast, Boss Babies in Bottles. And for those of you that are new here, my name is Jessica with a Y. I'm a twin mom, wedding and event planner, entrepreneur, and for today, your drinking buddy. May that be coffee or wine, depending on the time of day. Here I get real with you and talk about all things mom life, building your business, and event planning. What I've loved most about my first two seasons with you guys is that I've gotten to meet some amazing women and moms that are just like me, just trying to do their best in life. I've also been able to get super real with you all on my life and motherhood in general. So join me this season as I go through the twins' first birthday and what it's like to be a mom of twin free toddlers. I'll also be having some amazing special guests and going through some of my best wedding planning stories too. So grab your favorite bottle or drink and let's get this party started. Hey ladies, welcome to today's episode of Boss Babies and Bottles. Today we're joined by Ms. Heather Boyd, who supports tired parents who want an alternative to conventional sleep training. <laughs> and we are all tired parents. So Heather, thanks for joining. It's a pleasure to be here, Jessica. She helps families, guys, who really are just losing sleep over everything. So even from random things that are happening in their life and homes. So just because of the baby. So Heather combines really her 20 years of experience as a pediatric occupational therapist with her experience as a mom of three to just support parents like myself and you ladies in understanding sleep and infant development so that everyone can just feel more well-rested and confident in going into the next day. So she really has combined her neural development, attachment theory, and environmental health. Heather guides parents to make meaningful changes, not just to support sleep, but to support family routines, parent perspectives, child development, and mindset, guys. Her holistic approach really just considers sleep as a developmental process that is impacted by the whole family environment and not just about sleep. And it's not just about the baby. So she does one-on-one counseling and coaching guys for this to all different parent and family groups. So I'm super excited to have you here, Heather, and help us talk about baby sleep (laughs) and toddler sleep. We're going through both. (laughs) So tell me a little bit about you. Let's start off with that. Sure. Yes, I am. Before I became a mom, I was working in infant development in Ontario, Canada. And I worked there for quite a number of years before becoming a mom myself. And of course, it meant that everything that I knew about infant development, all of a sudden um, became real and became very practical. I saw all the changes that I would have made and the advice I gave to parents early on. But certainly my background in infant development helped with the parenting piece. And then eventually I worked in a neonatal follow-up clinic um, developmentally, looking at preemies and supporting their development. And then after the birth of my third, I decided, well, balancing three kiddos and a full-time career wasn't feeling all that great. So I decided to resign and open up my own private practice. I'm glad I was a bit naive about that. (laughs) That wasn't going to be necessarily easier, even though it was more flexible for sure. And uh, just when I opened, well, 
I was focusing on infant development, really, but I didn't know how that was going to work in private practice. I'd worked in family and children's services, providing services that were provided through tax money. And so to open up my business and figure out who's going to pay for this if they can get it for free, left me kind of in a big conundrum until I ran a workshop on sleep. And it hit me like as something so obvious, because when I look back at when I first became a parent, the biggest challenge I had was sleep. Our baby did, he was sleepless, absolutely sleepless, very difficult to get down. And as an OT, I knew all this information about infant development. I didn't know very much at all about sleep. So I dug in deep, I took a certification, I learned about sleep and then applied all the things that I had had questions about as a new parent um, into the sleep consulting that I, uh, that I do now. And it makes a lot of sense. It's, it's the number one concern that parents have. But ironically, at the same time, I had quit my job. We decided we we're going to homeschool. There's another naive piece. I don't know where I thought I was going to get more than 24 <laughs> hours out of the day. But, you know, such as sometimes naivety gets us into some awesome situations and awesome opportunities. But at the same time, um, as all this was happening, we discovered water damage and mold in our house. So just when I was ramping up and getting a website, we had to move out for five months, live with my mother-in-law, navigate an entire area of environmental health that I knew absolutely nothing about, like from how the house was supposed to be fixed to how our health might be affected. And so that derailed me for quite some time. And when I landed on my feet, I, I took off with the infant sleep piece and also pull in a lot of information about how to make healthy environments, indoor environments for us. Because we know that sleep is impacted not just by development, but by the environment we're in too. And so that's where I am now. That's great. I am a lover of sleep. So this is, this was, <laughs> and having twins, I got very little sleep. And yeah, and now, now we're sleeping through the night, but you know, it took its challenges for sure. So I know that sleep is just really such a huge topic all around for most parents. Um, so, I mean, I guess, tell us about these infant uh, sleep myths that are out there. There are so many of them. And I think it, it really makes it very, very hard for parents who are trying to navigate what to do to support sleep when they're getting a lot of misinformation about it. One of the common myths is that babies must be put down drowsy but awake in order to develop independent sleep. I'm not sure quite where that started. And I do know there are some babies for whom that works very well, but those are not the babies that have parents who are calling me because it works well and they can carry on with their day, carry on with their evening. But mm -hmm. for a really large, significant proportion of babies, putting them down drowsy but awake is very alarming for them. Babies are designed to be close to us, to have co-regulation. So basically having our body temperature, our respiration, our heart rate, our pressure of our embrace mm -hmm. as a way to co-regulate their nervous system to fall into sleep or to have sleep invited. So for parents that feel like they are doing something wrong if drowsy but awake down into the crib doesn't work it doesn't work for a really basic reason and that's just that we are designed to be close by to our primary caregiver and babies are looking for that so I know there are a lot of parents out there that even will wait until they think their baby is asleep and they'll lay them down and the eyes ping open like mm -hmm. like a button was pressed right <laughs> like it's all of a sudden they're alert 
And it's because babies really know they're, they're really in tune biologically with what they need. Yeah. And if it's not there, they become quite alarmed and distressed. And then parents become alarmed and distressed because they think something's not going well here. It should be working and it's not. I read that. I can't even tell you how many times. Put them down drowsy, but awake. I have a very vague memory of my lack of sleep from back then. Um, but I'm pretty sure that I think one of mine's loved it and the other one didn't. That's just something that we dealt with back then. So are there any other myths, other myths we should know about? Yeah, a related myth to that is that if you are nursing your baby to sleep or you're rocking them to sleep, um, whether it's with a bottle or by breast, that if they're falling asleep in your arms, they will never fall asleep independently ever. And I call that a slippery slope myth because it takes one of our major fears that we, this will never get better, that yeah. we will never sleep through the night ever oh, you're, again. You're telling me, I took my baby away from my husband, one of them, right? The one that he used to cut on. I was like, no, you're not going to rock her every time to sleep because I can't do this forever. Um, so totally, that was me. Yeah. Well, and there's, you know, there's some practical reasons for that too, right? We have as parents, a capacity to meet the need. And generally, if we have support and we have a spouse and maybe in-laws that live nearby and it's not a pandemic that's restricting visitors and support, we can probably manage pretty well. But then when you throw in twins or triplets or when you throw in prematurity and the fussiness that can come with that for sleep um, or even your own capacity and your own health for being able to maintain it, sometimes you, you hit a wall and you need to figure out another way around it. But the fact that this is treated like a given, like if you do this, you are screwed, is a myth. One of my three was very, very independent. He was the put down drowsy but awake kiddo. The other two needed more support. They needed more physical contact. And they're all sleeping through the night now too. I think what, what can be helpful for parents when they feel like they're imagining what the worst case scenario is. I always say, approach this as knowing that there's no bad habits. There's habits that work for us for a time. And then when our needs change or development shifts or the ability of our babies to fall asleep differently shifts, or we hit a wall and say, we cannot sustain this, then you can make a change and you make a change because everyone's ready for the change rather than it being this arbitrary decision based on fear of what's going to happen when they're 10 and somehow still need to be rocked. I don't know any 10 year olds that need that. Yeah, you're right. But you know, <laughs> twins, I was like, I was like, I got to take this baby away. He's going to, he's going to spoil this baby, which no, she's fine now. But yes, I, I feel that. So what is kind of the evidence and the research around sleep training? Because there's really just so much conflicting advice out there on baby sleep. There is Jessica. And it's, it's like this minefield for parents who are trying to make the best decisions they can who have their eyes on the holy grail of sleeping through the night mm -hmm. and yet have all this, every article you open is saying something different. So one of the challenges with looking at the literature is that most of the research is based on formula fed babies in solitary sleep spaces. And historically, and in other cultures, we're sleeping in the same room as our babies. And I know that's shifting. Guidelines have shifted um, quite a bit over the last little while. Breastfeeding rates are up and babies are staying in parents' room longer. And so the research is really applied to babies that are used to being in a solitary sleep 
classroom space. And it becomes very difficult to accurately translate that knowledge into any situation where families are practicing more of an attachment-based approach to sleep, um, whether it's breastfeeding, being in the same room, responding to baby when they wake up, not doing cry it out training, it becomes really hard to translate the knowledge. Mm -hmm. In addition to that, when I was struggling myself with looking at this literature as a sleep coach, how do I figure out and navigate this? Because these are the same articles that my parents, my clients are reading. It's the same articles that newspaper feeds are picking up on or blogs are picking up on. I thought, how do I make sense of this? Because there are articles in the research that completely contradict each other. And I thought, I think I figured it out. It is the lens through which the researchers are looking at the problem. So researchers that are looking at sleep training as being helpful mm -hmm. have the perspective that babies need to develop independent sleep early, as early as possible. Mm -hmm. And so the goal is how do we get to independent sleep as early as possible? In the other avenue of research, it's more anthropological. It's looking at culturally and historically what have human babies needed for millennia? And is there a way to meet those needs without mom hitting this wall of fatigue that's unmanageable by drawing in not just behavior, so a behavioral approach to sleep, but looking at family systems, looking at the support that's coming in, looking at how fundamentally different our role is as a mom than before we had babies. And how does that change how we spend our time, um, how we're trying to take care of ourselves? Are we staying up till midnight or 1am just to get some alone time? <laughs> and we've all done it, right? We think, oh, they're asleep. <laughs> Finally, the baby's asleep, and now I'm going to binge watch on Netflix and have a glass of wine. I and, wish that was what know, I was doing. I'm working. I wish. If I was binge watching on yeah, Netflix, well, I wouldn't be so tired. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, well, and you know, it's that speaks so highly to this idea that we're trying to squeeze so much in a day too, right? And yeah. figuring out how are we going to balance out this new role of motherhood with the other roles that we value so much and it squeezes into a day and we have to figure out how, what pieces are we okay letting go of? Mm -hmm. What pieces do we want to hang on to because we value them so highly that they're, it's important enough to us to hang on and how do we balance that with our baby's needs? And of mm -hmm. course our own self-care needs, right? Yeah. Wow. hundred percent. And obviously there's a lot of differences between adult sleep and baby sleep, but I, I wanted to go through a few of those with you. I think that's one thing that is often forgotten in some of the articles out there on sleep, that baby sleep architecture, like the way that it's built inside the brain is very different. So adults typically have a 90 minute sleep cycle. And in that sleep cycle, they start with really light sleep. Um, you have REM sleep and you have very, very deep sleep. And adults spend probably 25% of their sleep time in REM sleep, that lighter dream sleep. It's the sleep where we integrate our learning. We might be processing emotions or events from that day. So about 25% of our night is spent in, in REM sleep. So our sleep cycle is 90 minutes. Our REM sleep is about a quarter of that time. And when we wake up, we can roll over to a comfortable position or pull up the curtains or take a glass of water and fall back asleep. And so we wake up in the morning, we may not even remember that we've stirred. With a baby, their sleep cycles are very short. 30 minutes? 
30 minutes, initially, sometimes even shorter for newborn. And then, you know, for, you know, by nine to 12 months, it may be 45 minutes. Babies by that point are often linking sleep cycles. So it may seem like it's longer, but the sleep cycle kind of settles in around 45 minutes for quite some time. But half of that time is spent in REM sleep. So half of their sleep time is in that really light stage of easily interrupted sleep and dreaming, which can wake them up as well. And so the sleep cycle is shorter, which gives more opportunity for interruption in between each sleep cycle. More of it is in light sleep. And when they do wake up between sleep cycles, they don't have the ability to roll over into a comfortable position or get warm or cuddle against their partner to feel safe. And so they're rousing from the end of their sleep cycle, looking for support to settle again. Um, and I know that there's one other major difference that I like to point out. So we've got the self settling between sleep cycles, the length of the sleep cycle, the REM sleep, oh, and the depth of that deep sleep. For adults, we get into a really deep sleep where we're very, our brain waves are at a totally different capacity than when we're in REM sleep. For babies, they still have a deeper section of sleep, but it's not nearly as deep as adults. So even when they're in deep sleep, they're much more easily aroused than, a, than an adult would be. And so all those things fit together to help us understand why is it that babies are waking up often? Why is it to, that they need help falling asleep again? And why is it that it's so easy to interrupt them from sleep? I didn't even realize that it was that short everything, the whole process. That's crazy. So sleep training versus sleep development. What's the difference? I thought they were the same and, but you reference them as always being different. Yeah. Sleep training is taking a very behavioral approach. So looking at how can we change the behavior of the baby, whereas sleep development is looking at what's happening in the brain in terms of that sleep cycle or social, emotional development or motor and language development which you can imagine with a very light sleep cycle and a short sleep cycle, anything that's going on in that baby's life is going to be more likely to interrupt sleep, including walking or crawling or saying a whole explosion of new words, mm -hmm. um, learning to roll. And so sleep development is really looking at this as a brain development process that requires support from their environment. So parent support by being close or by settling the right environment that's calm enough and dark enough. And that's a very different thing than a behavioral approach, which is looking at how can we change how a baby is sleeping and sleep development is how can we support that process of development? Okay. When, when should a baby be sleeping through the night? Cause that's like a big thing in the parenting world. It's like the Holy grail, right? <laughs> we all want it. And yeah. I, I know when I was a parent with my firstborn, when he was very young, the impression I had from the blogs I was reading and the sleep books that I had was that by six months, babies should be sleeping through the night. Okay. And some of them certainly are, although the definition of sleeping through the night is a whole other topic of conversation in research generally like much of the research talks about five consecutive hours as being sleeping through the night. I know for those that need a lot of sleep as parents, five hours doesn't really cut it, but it, it's, I would have something. given anything for five hours back at the beginning. I would have given anything. <laughs> well, in the parents that I work with who get a five hour straight straight of sleep, they call me and they're like, I feel so good. I feel amazing. Yeah. yeah. At the beginning, well, it's like, that's, that's it. Like, you know, anything that you get over, at least for, for me, it was anything over two hours. 
it was at the beginning, you know, with two babies. But I mean, if I got more than two hours, I was getting really like an hour and a half in between feeding the first an hour to an hour and a half. Like, and that's, that was me like literally strategically making sure that I went to sleep for the whole entire time that I could, you know, not like actually trying to like clean anything or do anything or get ready for the next one. That was my strategic. It's like, can I get two hours in, man? That would be great you know like optimizing that little window that you have right yeah and with twins and triplets it's a totally different landscape than with singletons like it it really really is a whole other ball of wax but yeah in terms of when babies should be sleeping through I always pull out the word should and say when when are babies when do babies have the capacity to sleep through it varies so much by baby that sometimes you'll get babies sleeping through quite early sometimes by four months Other babies, um, they'll have periods of time where they can sleep longer stretches at night. Then they hit a huge developmental shift, an explosion in their brain, like at the four month mark or the nine month mark in particular, where wake up. Yes. Yeah. Because these, these regressions are actually developmental bursts um, that interrupt that immature sleep architecture, right? So it's interrupted because there's a lot going on in their brain. So they're waking up often. And so parents get really concerned that sleep was going well and now the wheels are falling off like the car is falling apart it's destroyed and they think what have we done why is it feeling so terrible and the fact is it's a developmental burst which causes more interruption with sleep and then when you get through that you have a kiddo who has a more mature brain maturing sleep cycles so those sleep cycles are getting longer the sleep is getting deeper and the REM sleep is starting to get shorter so that through the coming months, and it's much longer than what parents are expecting, but through the coming months, well into the second year, so when one-year-olds, babies are starting to sleep through longer and longer and requiring, with ups and downs, requiring less support to fall back asleep again. In my experience, these up and ups and downs are analogous to climbing a mountain where it's a tall mountain and the very tip top is that holy grail of sleeping through the night. And from the distance, like when you have a newborn baby, you think it's a straight line up the mountain. I just have to start walking and I'm going to get to the top. And as long as I keep walking, we're going to get there. Then you start walking and the path meanders down into a valley or around a lake. And you're thinking, I feel like I'm getting further away from this holy grail at the top of the mountain. I must be on the wrong path. The fact is you're not on the wrong path. This is the up and down nature of development. You get to the top eventually, but it comes with a lot of ups and downs. So I always tell parents when things are starting to feel like they're falling apart, but sleep was good, you will get back to good sleep again. You just have to hang on for the ride and keep on walking. Which is the hardest part because then you got a taste for what it was to sleep and then you can't. This doesn't actually always happen to me when I record, but talking about sleep is actually making me sleepy. Like just thinking about it. I know you've seen me yawn a few times. I'm just like, I'm like, why am I, I should not be like yawning, but I am because I'm thinking about the amazingness that it is to sleep. And uh, my littles are sleeping, um, thankfully 12 hours through the night. So seven to seven now. And that's a whole new world as a parent. <laughs> 7 p.m. The, the evening is still young. You could do very stuff. Young. Yeah, you could do yeah. stuff and still get to bed at a decent time as long as you're honoring your need for sleep too. Yeah, yeah. No, 100%. It even allows us um, now, right, to have someone come, like us put them to sleep, have someone come in. Actually, us go out to dinner 
and come back. And that's like, yeah, that's like, wow, we have a life ish. <laughs> that is amazing. Well, and then to talk about that idea of filling our own cup, right? We, we invest so much of our emotional energy and our attention into parenting and to be able to know that a break, like to be able to step away and whatever that looks like for a family, whether it's going out with your spouse or whether it's simply sitting in the backyard and not having to worry about the next a baby. Yeah. Like, yeah. Yeah. Like, and you, spoke, <laughs> you spoke, Jessica, about how hard it is when you get a taste for a good night's sleep and then it all falls apart and how painful that is. The research tells us that parents report that that nine month sleep, quote unquote, regression feels so much worse than the four month one. And I imagine it has a lot to do with it at the four month one. But once you once they get like even now, like if they wake up now, I'm like, oh, and then my husband's like, we used to do this all the time. And I'm like, I know, but like not anymore. So it's hard. It's hard once you, and that's, you know, I assume even for people who have new babies, right? Like after you've gone through all of this and starting all over and I'm just like, the thought process is is brutal. When we were talking about having uh, or planning for a third baby, we were very aware of the fact that the longer we waited, the more light at the end of the tunnel we would see. And we wouldn't be sure if we wanted to go back there it is not just physically exhausting. It is physically painful, that sleep deprivation and the intensity of those first couple of years with the physical contact and the high needs. And of course, you know, we don't as parents, moms especially, have enough support for that role. And so we're left very depleted when, you know, babies aren't doing any differently than they have for millennia, but the world around them is certainly different. And that world around them includes not enough support for those that are playing the primary role right now. Yeah. And and we're expected, you know, I talk about this a lot on the podcast as a woman, we're expected to do so much. We're expected to work the same amount as a man. We're expected to also raise our family and we're expected to keep a home and, and expected to do it without any support, you know? And I just, I can't, I don't imagine why I can't see why people judge other people. I mean, I, I just don't even understand. And, and, you know, our, our grandparents are, I live a different life than they used to. It used to be full support. Um, my grandmother was basically the one who raised me and I, I have a clear memory of that. And that is not my parents, you know? And so I'm expected to do everything. And that's, that in itself is a completely different world for sure too. Well, and it's not just that others are expecting it of us. We deeply expect it of ourselves without even oh, being conscious. Of it. Oh, no, no. Yeah. I'm conscious. I know that I put myself through. <laughs> I know what I put myself through. Every time I do something different, specifically like my really close friends that know me, they're like, oh, because you didn't have enough to do. And I was like, no, of course not. I don't have, I have plenty to do <laughs> and, I, and I'm still constantly coming up with new things for my brand and for me and for my family. And just, I don't know. I, I apparently I am a self-masochist. I'm a masochist is what it is. Um, <laughs> so we're going to call that. So what are the stages of attachment then? You know, how do we make sense of their development? Mm-hmm. 
when I talk with parents about the stages of attachment for sleep, I, I borrow from Gordon Neufeld, who's a developmental um, psychologist from BC. I should have written down the steps because I always end up getting them in the wrong order. Mm -hmm. But the basics of it are that every year of life for the first five years, there are generally stages of attachment, these attachment needs that babies have. And by understanding what those needs are, it can at least give us that deep breath to relax into this being a primal need of our babies mm -hmm. and that we can meet it openly, like with an open heart without fighting against it. And that sleep can usually come more easily when we are feeling calmer about what's happening. When we're anxious or worried about it, or we're trying to do what the sleep book says in terms of a schedule um, or the expectation of a schedule schedules, um, you know, are for, we structure our day on a schedule. Yeah. We look at the clock a yeah. lot. It plays a use role. It as a guide. Every baby's so different, guide. you know, I'm, I'm like, I used to see the schedules cause I, I wanted to see like, where should my baby be? And I remember saying, well, yeah, they're not exactly here, but they're here, you know, and that's okay. Like it's a guide. Yeah, absolutely. And I think when we get stuck on it, not being a guide, but a directive, then we get caught in baby's needs conflicting with the schedule and they're the two are not going to fit together unless no. you happen to be very very lucky and and the baby is really flexible or just happens to be very routine oriented yeah. but yeah with these stages of attachment I think that that whole first year is sensory and if we think of how much babies need to feel us see us smell us um, be embraced by us if we can lean into that being the primary attachment need for the whole first year, then we can relax a little and push less on the, the push for independence. Mm -hmm. um, one of Gordon Neufeld's um, approaches is to look at independence comes from dependence. So the more a baby's needs are met in the early months and years, the more they'll be ready to push off out of the nest on their own versus us having to really push it along. And I, I find it a really helpful one because it seems at first to be so counterintuitive, right? Yeah. Like, what do you mean? The, the more dependent they are, the more independent. And yet when you think about how do we emerge into the world, um, how do we go with confidence to try something that is scary for us or that requires bravery and courage, mm -hmm. whether it's going away to school or starting a new job or, or even just walking to school for the first time alone. And it comes because you have a firm base, a secure base of attachment. You know that if you need something, if you are scared or you get lost, you know that you have a parent that you can come to for support. Well, I guess if you get lost, it means you may have needed a little more practice walking to school. <laughs> yeah, but, but it, it sounds it sounds counterintuitive for sure, because you're saying the more they rely on us, the more they'll be independent. And that's just to reiterate your theory for the listeners, but it sounds opposite. And I think we're told opposite too, which for me, I'm, I'm super independent. I want my kids to be independent. So like, I'm like, here, have your spoon here, learn to feed yourself. Here you go. You know, like, I'm just so like, I'm like, do things on your own and I'm here and I don't leave them, but I'm, I'm very like, just like, go do it, you know? And that's how I am in life too. And it doesn't change contrary though. My husband is super dependent on, <laughs> on his family, his support and stuff like that. And, and, but he's still an independent person, but he's very dependent on like his parents. Well, and I think that core feeling of, do I feel like a competent person who's capable of making choices as an adult? 
And when our kids are really little, they're years and years away from getting to that stage of their own adult development where they need to be making decisions on their own. And even then, you know, we often have a friend to call or a parent to call to say, look, I'm really struggling with this, Mm. whatever this is. Yeah. And for babies, if they know that they can come back to us when they need us, and I'm going to even stretch it out further, when a teenager knows that they can come back to us when they need us, and that we're safe to talk to, that we are going to listen to them, that we're not going to solve their problems for them, but that we're there to support them, yeah. that, that starts in babyhood by simply being the foundation that babies get to push away from. Babies crawl, for example, not because we keep pushing, you know, putting them on the floor and walking away and they chase after us, they crawl because they're curious about the world beyond our lap and beyond our arms. And so they venture out. But what's one of the first things babies do um, when they have that physical space and they're mobile, they look back, they look back to make sure we're there. They look back to make sure that we think this is okay. And if we're there smiling and encouraging them and we believe in them, they're going to have more confidence to Apart from us more and if they're feeling scared or vulnerable they know they can come back and wear a warm embrace for them i like it so what are the different types of sleep trainings i mean i know the there's the cry it out which of course is is the one we all hear about at one point or another what are what are some of the other ones and i guess uh, what do you think about sleep training i think it comes down to looking at things as being on a spectrum from cry it out which I don't know many that support that at all. Anybody that knows anything about infant mental health is not supporting cry it out. And on the other end, you have responsive parents who are um, doing extended room sharing um, and responding through the night, not doing any behavioral changes. In the middle is a whole spectrum. Even within a sleep coach practice, there'd be a variety of strategies that may fit somewhere, at least on a narrow part of that spectrum. For me, I'm a developmentalist. So I, although with toddlers, I, I start pulling in some behavioral strategies to help bolster that progress or nudge them along. My, my approach is very developmental. So looking at what are their skills What's the next step? And then what do we understand about sleep architecture so that we can figure out how do we optimize sleep here? Like if they're waking up often, is it a tweak around when we invite bedtime sleep or when the timing of the naps are so that things go more easily? But certainly there, you know, there is a huge spectrum in there of people who are distinctly behaviorist. So they're, they're working on independence as the goal at this point in time will change the baby's behavior through strategies like the chair method, the chair lady, where you're gradually moving further and further away. Yeah, I read about that one originally. And then for whatever reason, it was dubbed um, by Kim Kardashian out of all people, but that's what she did. And then that's like, that's like the way to do it. And I was like, oh, okay. So basically it was already existed, but now we're going to give her credit for it. (laughs) (laughs) I was like, like, what is that? Um, But yeah, that's that's the theory that she talks about all the time. That little by little, she would just separate her chair from the crib. Yeah. Yeah. And I, you know, I used that method with my firstborn. Um, He was highly sensitive kiddo. He needed a lot of support. Uh, We had a second born by that point already. And I thought, okay, I am not a behavior, like I just don't take things very behaviorally. I take it very developmentally, but I also want to make sure that I'm giving him the sense that I 
I believe that he has competence that I'm still here, but that I may not need to be right there. It worked to some degree. He was a toddler by that point too. So it was, it's a bit different when you're negotiating boundaries and expectations in toddlerhood than in the first year. <laughs> yeah, um, I didn't even realize there was negotiation with toddlers. <laughs> Some of I think that sounds very oxymoronic in my head. I'm like, oh, we're negotiating with toddlers now. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. I don't negotiate with terrorists. How am I doing it with toddlers? <laughs> That's exactly, I, was, I wasn't going to say it. I'm glad you did. I was, like, I was like, yeah, I don't know. They look like little terrorists to me. <laughs> Oh man, that's and toddlers are such incredible. They're just uh, incredible, amazing kiddos, uh, humans. Like just they're they're one of the most amazing age group on the planet. And I think it's because there's this push and pull in toddlerhood. They need us so much still, and yet they don't want us. Mm-hmm. And they're feeling it. It's that push and pull inside them. We're feeling it because we're like touched out sometimes by that point. Yep. And we wonder if we're really screwing things up and are they ever going to be able to do this on their own? And then we also cry when they don't need us and we're upset because of the loss of that, that closeness, right? It's such an oxymoron. Yeah, it is. And I'm going into pre-toddler right now with the twin turning a year old. And I'm just like, this is a whole new world. I'm not quite sure I'm ready for it, but I mean, I wasn't ready for twins from the get. So I guess <laughs> one is never ready as I always say, but it's like, I really feel I'm like, oh my God, what is this pre-toddlerhood? So, you know, I did want to ask a little bit about how do we make sense of toddler sleep? What if some, someone in my space who is going into the 12 plus months, like what should we expect in terms of sleep and toddler sleep? Ah, well, toddlers usually by that point are getting longer stretches of sleep. There's usually a pretty clear pattern, not for every baby. Some babies are really not, uh, they're pattern averse. You can't get your anything pinned down in terms of a, a schedule. But for most babies by toddlerhood, there's fairly predictable pattern. It moves, obviously, constantly when development shifts, that's going to shift as well. But there's usually a very clear pattern of when naps are going to happen. But when things are a little off, toddler emotions are like huge because they're not just expressing a physical need anymore. They're starting to be verbal so they can start explaining what it is they need. And they're much more aware of their surroundings than before. So they're aware of what they need and how they're going to try to to meet that need by drawing us back in. So the emotions are high and the self-regulation is not there. So I always think, you know, toddlers and teenagers, they just don't work from the prefrontal cortex of their brain, which is the logical part of the brain. They're working purely on emotion and need and they don't have a lot of regulation. So they still need a lot of co-regulation. And it often happens that just when toddlers are starting to explode with these huge, intense emotions, whether it's at bedtime or any time during the day, it's when we're kind of thinking, if we're, if we're used to all the reading that we've done or the way that we were raised as kids, and we think, shouldn't this be, again, that straight line to the mountain? What the heck is happening? And if you know that this is about co-regulation and that we can tap into how can we regulate our own emotions enough by taking a deep breath, by calming ourselves down, by taking care of ourselves, whether that's to get someone to take care of the baby for a little bit while we have a bath, whether it's going out for a walk on our own or with the baby, anything to take care of ourselves, then we come to bedtime or the middle of the night wake up 
with a little more patience, a little more resilience and a little bit more calm. Yeah. And it's that calmness that gets mirrored back from toddlers. They're, we're like their safe container while they explode. So we contain that not by restricting them from having these big feelings, but by making sure that we're, they know that we're loving and calm and we're here. Yeah. And we're here and we have patience. <laughs> like, and it doesn't feel like you do all the time, right? Well, like, I know it doesn't, it doesn't, it's, it's a constant, it's a constant thing. I'm, I'm like, okay, gotta have more, you know, like they don't understand, you know, you, and, and naturally you do because obviously they're babies, right? But obviously the older they get, the more you're like, well, they should know, you know? And so that's where, that's where that problem kind of comes in. So what can parents do to kind of make this all better? Obviously parents are just so worried and anxious these days. So, so what can we do here? Yeah. Well, and I think it goes back to first and foremost, take care of yourself well enough to be, come to the scenario as calm as possible. Yes. Get Zen. (laughs) Also strip away all the messages that you're getting from everyone else. Yeah. You have two experts in the room. The first is your baby. They know what they need. They haven't read the books. They haven't been told what they're supposed to think. They are going purely on biology. So they are the first expert, but the other one is you. Mm-hmm. And it may not feel, it may feel very wobbly and uncomfortable to think of yourself as an expert when you've read all these books and you've read all these blogs and you well, think nobody knows I, all these are better than you. Absolutely. Absolutely. And when we can strip away all these messages that are floating around in our heads, getting us really confused, it, it's just like muddy water in there. Mm-hmm. Clear that out. Look at your baby to tell you what they need and look at you for what, what resonates with you for meeting this need. Yeah. What can you do right now to support your baby and still feel like you have some kind of um, routine or self-care that allows you to keep that balance? Because yeah. you don't need to lose either of you in all this, you can pay attention to both sets of needs. And, and it's sometimes coming up with a creative solution to come up with a way that's going to meet everybody's needs. Uh, But it's so important. Yeah, I I can't even I can't agree with you more. So obviously, we went over time, but I appreciate this is such a hefty topic, uh, baby sleep. So uh, we might need to do a part two, Heather. That might need to be what happens. But baby sleep is great. Um, thank you so much. Obviously, lastly, though, of course, my last question, it wouldn't be the Boss Babies and Bottles podcast if I didn't ask you, what was your favorite drink or bottle? Well, I had to give some thought to this because um, on a day-to-day basis, I love my sparkling water, like just plain, unflavored, love it. But lately, and I kind of laugh because I was never a beer girl before but there's a microbrewery in Barrie Ontario called Flying Monkeys and I love their IPA so that's my and with the warmer weather coming I'm I'm looking forward to to having that out on the patio oh that's awesome hey I'll take it I'll take I love my water too but I will definitely take a good glass of cold champagne or rosé outside any day All right. Well, thank you so much, Heather, again, for joining me and just talking all about baby sleep and giving us that insight. Um, So thank you. Thank you, as always, so much for joining. It was a pleasure, Jessica. This was a lot of fun. You're welcome. All right. So ladies, thank you so much. We are going to hook up everything below that leads you to Heather. So any additional questions you have or anything like that, you're going to find her links at the bottom. Thank you as always so much for listening. Catch us on the next one. Talk to you later.
Thank you, as always, for your love and support. The Breathe 3 Podcast wouldn't be anything without you. Make sure, if you haven't already, please subscribe and review the podcast. And make sure to look me up on Instagram at ebjevents or canal.twins to stay up to date on upcoming special events and exciting announcements I might have. See you on the next one.